0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and joining me today is Elisa Quitney. Elisa is probably already well-known to many of you because her name appears in the credits of Sandman Issues as the assistant editor beginning in Season of Mist. And Elisa has also worked as an editor and writer on a number of other comics and has also written a lot of prose novels. Elisa, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's just tremendously awesome to have you here.
1: Oh it's great to be here even though as as I have confessed I get intimidated sometimes listening to your wonderful podcast. I have to go recuse myself.
0: <laughs> well the feeling is is mutual and uh, yeah we'll definitely need to talk about that. But we're going to have a pretty big conversation today. I mean for one thing I'm very interested in your career. We're also going to chat about a science fiction short story from 1953 called Warm. This is by Robert Sheckley, who's a really important science fiction writer from the golden age there, and who also happens to be your father. So that's going to be really interesting. But yeah, first, there is this, uh, this elephant in the room, which is that you also host a Sandman podcast, which you do along with Lonnie Diane Rich. That show is Endless, a Sandman podcast. And Endless is just a ton of fun because well, one, you've actually worked on the comic, but Lonnie has never read it before, and that's a great uh, dichotomy there. Uh, but also, of course, you're both professional writers, and so it's just a great mix of perspectives, and I- I've been enjoying the heck out of it.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I think, you know, probably we, along with the admiration, we we probably need some mutual podcast therapy for that moment when you feel <laughs> like, oh, crap, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> And yet you can't, you can't listen beforehand because then you would influence yourself. I guess it's like when the Miss America contestants are not allowed to hear how. You know the previous contestants have answered the question, and how would you
0: solve world hunger? <laughs> right. Yeah. Though that's exactly right. And in fact, just yesterday, uh, you released your first episode on season of mist, which is you know we're not there yet on the show. Though Brent and I have started recording those episodes already. And uh, wow, I wanted to listen to that so bad, but uh, had to had to hold off. Though uh, at the same time, I'm actually really looking forward to listening to all of your coverage of that before Brent and I do our wrap-up episode so that we can in- engage with you on the air in that way. And, and, and maybe we can find some way to uh, you know, do that in some other forum as well, which I think would be a lot of fun.
1: Oh, that would be fun. If it were the 1970s, we could have one of those old game shows where it's like, Battle of the Sandman Podcast, and there'd be, you know, some vat of bubbles and a cheese that we need to get from one <laughs> end to the other.
0: I mean, I would totally be there for that, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you you two have... have you know, passed us up in, in where we're, where we are in Sandman. Of course, we're a Neil Gaiman show and not exclusively a Sandman show. And also we're just really, really slow, but you also, I think have plans for covering the the, the TV show as well, right?
1: Yes. Yes. That, that was, uh, that is definitely a part of the, the plan. And that will be an area where I think Lonnie has a lot more experience and I am the, um, you know, still slightly damp chick. That, that was meant to be a chicken reference, not
0: <laughs> oh, oh, <I> see. <laughs> a sexist.
1: I, yeah, that came out wrong. Anyway, I was thinking of like, you know, the chicken at the fair and it comes out of the egg and its feathers, its little downy feathers are all still damp.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the problem when uh, when all of our words have also been turned into some kind of sexual innuendo. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God. It just, just makes having any conversation <laughs> slightly difficult. <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Lonnie is someone who I've been listening to for almost a, a decade now because she has done shows on almost all of my favorite TV shows. She's done podcasts, I should say, on almost all of my favorite TV shows. And that's just been a, a real delight for me. And, uh, you know, Brent and I don't plan to do the TV show on an episode by episode basis, which then that means that I just get to be, you know, eating popcorn in your audience. And I'm really excited about that.
1: Maybe we can all text each other as we're watching.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do that. That would be amazing. <laughs> so the other thing I, I have to know, Elisa, about the show, about Endless, is the genesis of it. Because, you know, as someone who is on six or seven podcasts <laughs> right now, uh, my sense of it is that someone always has the idea. One, you know, one co-host always has the idea and then kind of ropes the other person into it. But I just wonder who was who in this scenario.
1: I I guess I was... The Roper, uh, I, so for a while, Neil, Neil and I have continued to work together. We had worked on the Norse Book of Mythology, which was originally going to be the Book of Mythology. And then we ended up, he ended up doing the deep dive into Norse mythology. And we were talking about other projects. And, um, and then at one point, I, I think, again, this may have just been the, 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 you know, tiny little seed of an idea. He was saying, "You know, it'd be great if, if uh, as we're starting to work on the the Sandman uh, TV series, if someone who'd worked on the original comic could come and be in England." And and then he looked at me. I had just uh, moved into a new place. I was involved with elder care with my mom, and I had this enormous brand new puppy and he kind of looked at me and I looked at him I was like yeah I'm, I can't go anywhere and um and that was all that was ever said about that and then the pandemic happened and almost nobody went anywhere but it it felt tantalizingly like oh this exotic other life that maybe I could have had <laughs> and i i thought well okay what can you turn this into? How can you still feel like you're involved in some peripheral way? And I thought, oh man, I well, I should also say, I love listening to story analysis when, you know, while other people look up, I don't know, strange dog videos, bones, no bones. I look up story analysis all the time. I love story analysis and I love Lonnie's. And so I found myself thinking, well, what if, you know, I could... Be part of that, and sort of talk about the differences and translating from one medium to another. So I approached Lonnie, and she said, "Yes, this would be great." and you know, and i I she told me what equipment to buy, and I went and I purchased the equipment. <laughs> and then the pandemic got even worse, and I think I moved house twice. And I couldn't find any of my equipment. So anyway, now, now I have two sets of equipment because the minute I rebought all the equipment, I found the original equipment. But we, we conceived of this baby before the pandemic. And then we, we started, you know, birthing it in, in this, in the end times.
0: Well, I, for one, am just super glad that you guys are are doing the show. It's just a a phenomenal show, and it certainly makes my commutes lots and lots of fun now that commuting is actually a thing that I am doing again, as we've moved at least from one phase of the end times to another phase of the end times. And you have worked on Sandman and still have a, a working relationship with Neil Gaiman. So I want to know that story. I want to know how you got started at DC.
1: I think I've talked a lot about the fact that in my initial interview, Uh, I, I was asked by Dick Giordano, who was then the vice president, what kind of comics, which of DC's comics I liked best. And I broke the rule of trying to tell him something, you know, that would, I thought serve me. Instead, I admitted it was House of Mystery and House of Secrets, which were no longer being published. And he said, Oh, well then, you know, I've got, uh, I, have I got an interview for you? You should come back and interview with Karen Berger. And in that interview, he said, by the way, you know, before you go, would you like to take some comics with you? And some of those were Sandman. So I guess that was probably, I'm trying to remember which that that would have been. They, they were the early ones. I don't think I got the first comic. I got whatever was going out at the time. And I became utterly obsessed. And so I think it was only a couple of weeks before I, I had my interview with Karen, but I went out to a comic book store as one did and, and bought all of the issues of Sandman that were missing. So I was up <laughs> to date. And, um, I, I, there was something about the tone of the book that hooked me from, from the get go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true for all of us, right? I mean, just the just the the sheer, uh, I I guess, rich darkness I I might call it that's just there from from issue one is is so immersive, and you know, Brent and I were a little late to the to the game. I think probably it was around season of Miss. Might have been a little bit earlier than that that we actually started, you know, grabbing the the issues off the shelf. I mean, that's just a, kind of a matter of, of how old we were when they were coming out, and you know, it was difficult for us at that time to to go back and uh, and and pick them up. But it just you know didn't matter right? It was not a stumbling block for us because even though it was clear that there was some information that we were missing and so on, uh, we were there for the mood, you know, as much as anything else. And just the whole tone of the thing just had such a good feeling and was itself its, its own reward. It's, it's just so brilliant.
1: I think also that when, you know, you, you, For me and for you, when you're starting Sandman, if you start in the middle, you're aware that you've missed things, but you've missed one narrative that began. It's not like coming into Batman or the Legion of Superheroes back in the day. (laughs) It's not like you've missed one storyline of this, This, you know... uh, really ornate uh, backstory that you feel like you're never going to catch up to speed. So there, I think there was there was something not endless about the endless from the very beginning. <laughs> you could feel that this was a story which had a beginning, a clear beginning. And maybe because of that, um, that, that you could go along for this ride. And perhaps we were all knowing at, in some sense that there was going to be an end because it, it had a very different feel from the other DC comics of the time. And there were other vertigo comics that I came to love deeply and other writers, you know, who I admire amazingly. I think that something about Sandman that also resonated with me right away, though, was the fact that it, it was building on my own weird childhood affections for Cain and Abel of the House of Mystery and House of Secrets and the Three Witches. And, and, uh, and then of course there were other characters I, I'm not as familiar with. So I think that when it came to getting to know Neil, I, I think we did share a lot of those early influences and affections. And then it turned out we'd read uh, some of the same stories and obscure, obscure things. Although I used to think that I had read widely and obscurely, and then I met Neil and I <laughs> was always thinking, you know, gosh, did he not, you know, Get up for you know bathroom breaks because it just seemed he must have been you know in in some womb of of constant literature to have picked up as many references as he did.
0: Yeah, I, I'll spoil things for our listeners just a little bit here and say that that uh, just about a week ago Brent and I recorded uh, an episode about. Uh, that the sort of interlude issue in the season of mists—that's its own standalone short story that takes place at uh, an English boarding school and features a, a student just in the library, right? And and uh, Brent read on uh, into the microphone there some comments from Neil himself about how that was fairly autobiographical, and uh, so that, I think I think that's that's how you do it—is just to lock yourself in the boarding school library,
1: and that is. One of my all-time favorite issues and and episodes or whatever we want to call it, I think because I was a deeply deeply nerdy kid, you know, nerdy. And I think now nerdy has a certain cachet, but you know, it, in in the seventies, <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, it did not. <laughs> um. And uh, I was nerdy enough, and I guess I didn't look specifically female enough, so I got threatened and you know beaten up a little in that you know nerdy kid way um now i'm thinking like oh god that sounds terrible not beaten up in some terrible th- i not traumatized it was just it was just a right. typical <laughs> upper west side <laughs> yeah. 70s childhood
0: right well i mean we've all been to school right and we 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 know What that is like, right? How tense those uh, social situations can be when you know, even though someone from the outside observing it would be like, "What's the big deal? Look, you're going to be 30 and awesome someday." So, like, just you know, uh, just deal with it. Just just go to class, you know, and get A's, right? So the thing our parents always tell us, but no, there there could be real nonviolent trauma in those schools.
1: Yes, yes, I think my mom always said, "How come you're always so desperate to go to the bathroom when you get home from school? Why don't you just go to the bathroom before you leave?" I said, "Go to." the bathroom in school school?
0: no 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 what a terrible (laughs) idea right Yes, and and uh, I have, of course have, I I have recently become a parent, and although it will be a few years before Finch is actually in school, I can already hear myself saying stuff like that, and I'm trying to like just say it all now to like empty rooms so that I can be better <laughs> when it when it comes time because that is the last person I want to actually want to actually be. Well, I I am fascinated always by other people's jobs. I guess maybe we all are as pop culture. That's why we have so many like doctor and lawyer and cop on TV and so on. But I, I would love for you to tell me, what does a comics editor do? Like, what's a, a typical day like working just as a comics editor and then maybe specifically on The Sandman?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, and I, I'm trying to think of a way to, to say this, uh, you know, in a coherent and succinct <laughs> way. So there's always a bit of tension. I'm I, I'm gonna speak both as an assistant or associate, or and then I became an editor. So you first of all have to deal with the projects that are in motion, the projects that are about to come out, and then you have to keep hatching new ones. So you're you know, you're like a lizard person, you know, with <laughs> with you you need to tend your eggs a little, but you need to keep hatching the new eggs. Um so when it comes to let's say you've got I don't know. It's a lot more than this. But let's say you have three different series that you are helping, you know, move along the line. So you want to speak to the writer and see where they're at in terms of the script and and what's going on and when, you know, when they'll get more to you. Uh, then you also need to get the script to the penciler and make sure that the penciler understands and is on board and, and get a sense of the penciler's schedule and pacing. Uh, then, it, you know, in the old days, it went from pencils to inks. Of course, that's all a bit different now that things are much more computerized. Um, and then to the, you know, you would balloon the pages. You'd physically mark out where the balloons and captions would go and mark up the script with numbers and send that off to the letterer. So you were doing all of this trafficking, and then, of course, the troubleshooting. Maybe in the middle of a big crossover event, uh, one of your key artists joins the army.
0: Oh. Is, that <laughs> you know? a, is that a true story?
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe you're, one of your writers has a bit of a freak out. And when you call up to see what's going on, you're told that the um, the writer has died by the person who turns out to be the writer. So, you know, there's, there's all of that nuttiness. And... And at the same time, you've got to figure out, and again, if you're an assistant editor, you're helping with this. Uh, but if you're an editor, you're the one handling it when you say, oh my gosh, I can see that we're slowing down or there's some stuff going on. Do we need to schedule a fill-in issue? And who'd be good for that? Then you're also dealing in-house with covers and um, and promotional materials and uh, special events. And then you're constantly trying to come up with, new projects and figure out okay you know this is where I am now in the schedule but what would I like to be working on and you know sometimes you will speak to a writer and say you know I'd love to work with you and that's all you say and sometimes you say you know I've always had this dream of seeing what you would do with You know, like caffeinated woman. I just, you know, I, I know you. I know your love of coffee and I think this character would be a natural fit. Do you want to think about it? Would you like to pitch me something?
0: That's too many brands in the fire, I think, for, 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 for my mental acuity. But that also sounds extraordinarily exciting.
1: The one thing I'll just add is that in terms of things going wrong on a comic, you've got creative people. And on the one hand, they're professional and they're, um, um, it's amazing to me, particularly what the artists are able to produce on a deadline. But you know, they're they're building the air, they're flying the airplane while it's being built. And so you know that's there's that challenge. but and at the same time, creative people, as we all know, have you know their moments of self-doubt and imposter syndrome and freak out, and also life. <laughs>
0: right. I mean, I feel like those are, are are just speaking for myself anyway. those those sometimes feel like the norm. <laughs> and the moments of clarity and uh, and artistic joy and inspiration are are the the minority feeling all right. Well, I have to know what was your favorite issue to work on?
1: It, you know, that reminds me of that question that people always ask writers, like, what's your favorite book? And I think to myself, do people have a favorite book? Right? <laughs> do, do people even have a favorite color? Like my favorite color to look at in a sunset or to wear as a garment? My favorite book when I'm starting to write or my favorite book at a certain time in my life? So the answer is, I have to say it has changed and changes. You know, sometimes I would have sworn, well, you know, it's this issue that was my favorite and then I'll go back and I'll see something in another issue. Um so I I I really cannot say that I have a favorite, but I I have I have favorites and I I won't go into that, but I have, I have lots of favorites and and favorite moments inside and you know in doing the podcast, I'll tell you this. One of my I wouldn't say least favorite, but a story that didn't particularly resonate with me strongly when I first was reading it was Facade. And now in the reread, I see it entirely differently. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I I think that's just jumped, you know, 15 spaces up my list.
0: Yeah, I actually had very much the same response to Facade doing it for the for the podcast. And of course, you, you only released that episode maybe about two weeks ago or so, I suppose. So you've done that very, very freshly. And, and actually, I guess Brent and I have as well. And yeah, when I was an adolescent, Facade was almost certainly my least favorite issue in dream country. And this time around, uh, I I adored it. Uh, it really spoke to me in, uh, in ways that I, I couldn't have envisioned as an adolescent.
1: Well, I thought it was about getting older, but maybe also about the pandemic. Facade may be the pandemic
0: pandemic sandman story right i mean we're only connected to each other i mean just you know everyone in the world right is really only connected to other people in the world through telecommunications and And masks uh, and masks right and it's 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 uh, it's lonely and and unsettling. I think for your face is your ashtray.
1: That's (laughs) true. I don't actually. I don't even know what that meant. I just said it, and I'm not sure what that means.
0: (laughs) I mean, it does feel like a metaphor for for much of my life. So that's I think that's fine. Well, I I want to ask you a little bit more about working with Neil because you also worked on Norse mythology as a a research assistant, and I also have worked as a research assistant though in a a sort of different milieu as an an academic, as a grad student doing uh, research assistant for uh, professors, which was actually something I was surprised to discover that I quite enjoyed. but I would love to know what was involved in that uh, and, and just you know what that work was like.
1: In the beginning, when Neil approached me about working uh, with him on a book of mythology and it, I think originally it was going to be a, a little uh, a smattering you know of of different, uh, of different myths from all, all different sources. I'm not sure exactly what we thought we were going to do, exactly what my role was, and and probably was going to be a bit more of a traditional research assistant. And I did do some of that, but I think in the end, I I was probably as much of a doula as a research assistant. (laughs) And maybe, maybe that is in part what research assistants do. I remember at one point that we were talking and uh, I was visiting him where he was then living and there were all of these interruptions and, um, you know, people wanted to know things and people were calling him and people were texting him. And, you know, he was very gracious, but he was trying to field all of this. And at a certain point, I said, Hey, can I look at your phone for a second? And you have to understand that, first of all, we're very old friends, but also, Neil is always about 10 years ahead of me in any technology. So he probably thought like, oh, she wants to see what a smartphone looks like. And, um, and then he handed it over, which of course is a lot of trust anyhow. And then I just said, you don't get it back until you write two pages. And he looked at me. And then I think there was this intense feeling of relief that, you know, that he felt that crossed his face. And, and that became, I think, a lot of what I did is I, I became an excuse like, oh, I'm sorry, Elisa says I can't do anything till I write two pages. But also, as writers, it can be really hard to give ourselves permission to create. And so I think, I think that was part of it. And I became also the person that he could bounce ideas off of. And I, I remember that a lot of times he'd ask my opinion and I'd say it and then he'd argue <laughs> with me. Um, <laughs> And in one sense, I think I did win uh, an argument, which was in the very beginning. I said, you know, obviously you have to be true to the material, but don't be too constrained, because I think they want what you were so able to do in The Sandman, which was to access these storytelling voices and to really feel your way into um, into myths and legends and, and make them come alive. And I do think that in the beginning, he, he was probably, I, I mean, again, it, it was always going to be a balance of being true to the material, but I think he loosened up and found that uh, Sandman voice that, that you hear in a lot of the shorter stories again. And of course, those were stories he was making up based on a lot of reading, and these were true to the material. But I think I think in the end, I might have even won that argument. I think in the beginning, he had this uh, idea that I would be making him cups of tea. But it turns out that I'm really bad at making tea. And in the end, uh, Neil was always having to make me the tea and teach me all about tea. <laughs> I, think, I think he still hopes that, you know, when this plague is over and we work on the next book that maybe I've gotten better at tea. <laughs> I, I hope that I
0: will get better at tea. Right, right. I mean... One, I mean, you're just, you're just not English. And so, (laughs) you you, you, I mean, I would trust you to make coffee, right? That's, that's the, that's the difference. You'd be wrong. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) I I think my singular talent as a human being is to always gather a group of people around me who are willing to help me make food and coffee and tea. That is, that is my (laughs) special talent. (laughs)
0: I mean that's I think winning at life there. I, before before we move on though, I just have to say that while you've been telling me about working with Neil Gaiman, I have just I've just realized that my kind of you know although he has a kind of uh, iconic look to him that uh, uh, still somehow my my image of Neil Gaiman in my mind while you've been describing working with him has slowly transformed into uh, Anthony Head as Rupert Giles, and uh, I, it feels like an epiphany to me actually. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's some of that. I think. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, before I uh, I start, uh, I don't know, rending the fabric of the multiverse with uh, <laughs> trying to make crossovers, there, uh, let's talk about some of your your own work as a, a writer, and and maybe let's start with comics. You've you've written some comics that I personally have really loved, and. and I think perhaps the most, maybe not important, but the most germane one to hanging out with the Dream King is that you have written a a miniseries on Destiny, something I'm hoping that Brent and I will actually be able to cover on the, the show someday. And maybe without spoiling that too much or spoiling the Sandman too much, I would love to know how that project came about.
1: Well, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, Destiny is the only character that I think wasn't a, you know, given a, a creator owned, you know, it was not created by Neil Gaiman with Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg, uh, because Destiny was a pre-existing character. And so it was the only one that was uh, available for, for DC to, to play with in that way. And, um, yeah, so around that time, I think everyone was doing a little obscure, you know, Neil was not the only one taking uh, obscure characters and, and 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 doing little series. So I I got to do a Phantom Stranger and I got to do Destiny. And for me personally, I would say that obviously I was working on Sam and. I understood that the mandate, in a way, was to you know try and tickle that spot a bit. But I was pregnant at that time and became obsessed with plagues and pandemics. Uh, it, I think other women became just hypochondriacal in a more contained way. But <laughs> I first, I was obsessed with Ebola. Um, and then I kind of ended up getting really interested in the bubonic plague and the Black Death and read everything I could lay my hands on. So when uh, I was asked to pitch something, I really wanted to write about a pandemic. So that's, I mean, that's the other amusing thing about Destiny is it's very much a, a pandemic tale. And it, you know, so it was focusing on, uh, the, the different outbreaks of the bubonic plague in, um, in the Byzantine Empire under the Emperor Justinian, um, in the 1348 when it really spread into England. And now it's been so long, I've forgotten the date, but the, uh, it was the last great outbreak of the plague in England, and there's a famous town, Eym, E Y A M, where the the townspeople decided to seal themselves off and not spread the plague. Uh, and now that we are living through a pandemic, I think we can e- be even more admiring of the selflessness of the villagers in in willing in being willing to sacrifice themselves in that way. So the the other thing uh, that For better and for worse, but for better or for worse, that really went in is I have had this lifelong love of a somewhat pulpish writer called Frank Yerby, Y-E-R-B-Y. And he used to write these somewhat turgid, but also philosophical, uh, historical novels. And um I think I think Neil has said to me, Yes, your Yurby influence shows all over Destiny. <laughs> um and I I think that uh it it's I think it may be the only story where I let myself completely, you know, leave humor, you know, to the side and go dark and and somewhat somewhat purple. Um and I I enjoyed it. It was, it's a, it's a flavor that I love. And I think I, I haven't explored as much in my writing. And I got to work with all these really amazing, um, artists. So th- there were just so many things about Destiny that, that was, uh, really cool and appealing. But yes, at the end of the day, it is my turgid purple, uh, hypochondriacal pregnancy pandemic <laughs> book.
0: Uh, well, I love knowing this now, because uh, as, as someone who has, although I have not been pregnant, I have had a lot of anxiety while my wife was pregnant, and uh, I will really look forward to revisiting it with that with that lens, because I I was the person who had all of those types of anxieties. <laughs> I was the one. Of course, I was also actually teaching about the plague and so <laughs> the Black Death and so on that semester as well. But yeah, that'll be a fun lens for me to revisit that. And this is a story, I mean, I just love this mini series and I, I recommend it to to everybody. It's not available in print anymore sadly because actually now seems like a great time to yeah. reprint it.
1: Hey DC, get, right. get it together. <laughs> it's a pandemic book. I think it is it is as an ebook and that was That's uh, right. it actually got an Eisner nomination which um, was really nice. I can't remember what one, but I I uh, I was really touched by that, because that was that was sort of a, a big honor. and i I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the Black Death is sociologically, how interesting it is. Um, but i I tried as much as I could to keep it as a story about people and not to get too swept up in huge historical events. And I think it was Neil who told you told me about Procopius and uh, the secret history. Uh, yeah. by Procopius, which is so bonkers, wonderful. If, uh, if, if you ever say to yourself, I really would like to pick up some ancient history, Procopius, man.
0: Yeah, uh, Procopius, huge part of my PhD dissertation, so I, I will second that recommendation for sure. <laughs> and, uh, well, I want to talk about a, another book that you've you've written, another comic book that you've done that also is using a character who Neil Gaiman did not invent, but does show up in the Sandman. Though you've you've actually done a number of of, of books with characters who fit that bill. Uh, but here, what I'm thinking of is Mystic U, which uh, I guess sort of the central character is Zatanna, who uh, Brent and I have not actually met yet in the Sandman, but she's one of my absolute favorites and mystic use more recent this is uh, 2017 and I think Probably going into 2018, if I remember correctly. I do uh, any of us real, remember 2018? <laughs> <2018. laughs> so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but I, I do remember slightly vividly the the circumstances of acquiring this comic because I happened to have right around the time that these issues were starting to come out, and coincidentally moved across the street from the best comic book shop in Philadelphia, and what is surely one of the best comic book shops in all the world, uh, which is uh, Amalgam. That's that's uh, another recommendation. If you're in the Philly area, stop by Amalgam, please buy some comics there. Uh, absolutely awesome store. But I just, you know, it was like, oh, I'm living across the street from a comic shop. I've spent actually the last decade living largely out of a suitcase, not buying anything um, <laughs> because I wasn't going to be able to take it with me. I want to go buy some comics again, and I'm going to, you know, subscribe to, yeah, you know, just like everything. My weekly stack was pretty massive for the, the year that we lived in that apartment, but Mystic U was one of them. So that's why that's where I'm getting those dates from, I think there. But yeah, I love this book. It's about Zatanna. And again, I guess I just kind of want to know what was the, the genesis of this project? Where did you come up with the idea of of, of doing a uh, Zatanna goes to magical college story?
1: You know, it this was one of those stories that you had to be really resilient as a writer in order to see it through to completion, because it, it was... Um, You know how in Sandman there's that magical battle and in order to win it, you know, you have to turn into a chipmunk and then you have to turn into a turnip and you have to, (laughs) now you're a door. And, um, so in the beginning, uh, let's see, DC was moving its base of operations from New York City to LA, to Burbank. And in that time, they were more open to things. So first, I got involved with the, the big Convergence crossover. And um, and what I did is I they asked a character I wanted to do, and I did Batgirl. I ended up doing Stephanie Brown Batgirl. And there is sort of a connection here because I thought, well, what's the story... In all of this crazy crossover, you have to do this, you have to do that. There's a giant dome. What's the story that interests me on a personal level? And I thought, well, imposter syndrome is one of my key themes. And I thought about how Stephanie Brown's Batgirl was not necessarily the (laughs) fiercest fighter or the most tactical, strategic. You know, there were these other Batgirls who had her beat in that department, and if you were the chosen one and you weren't sure why, how would that affect you? So that, you know, what is your special sauce if it's not, you know, you're not Cassandra Kane and you're not Oracle and you're not all of these other other things. So after that, they asked me for a whole bunch of, uh, you know, well, pitch, would you like to do this? Would you, they actually at one point asked me if I'd like to write Hellblazer and I, I was thinking, God, yes, but I have no idea what story I would tell. I mean, there's so many incredible stories that have been told already. I just had no idea how I would find my John Constantine. Um, Anyway, so there was one where they, they had this, I think it was like a cosplay idea in a college. And I was like, yeah, cosplay in a college. I love that. Um, cosplay in a college, but they actually end up having real powers. And that is, that is that. You know, it's like looking at some like tiny lizard and like, and this is, you know, the forerunner of (laughs) T-Rex. So it changed a lot. And the the through line that I had, because I'm about to tell you how many freaking changes this thing went through as, you know, (laughs) at one point, like I was flown out with a whole bunch of other impressive people to to the new DC headquarters. And I was, you know, feeling like this is it. I'm, I'm, you know, going to be reborn and uh, I'll have this major comic. And, but at that point, it was going to be almost all creator owned characters. So I came up with this whole plot and Alain Morissette, who's my writing buddy now, and we've done other things. He was initially, it was like an arranged writer, artist, match. and And anyway, then everything ended up going through complete Switch. So I think they told me I could have one D C character, which was gonna be um Tim from uh, Books of Magic. And uh Timothy Timothy I'm having a moment. Timothy Hunter, God am I old. <laughs>
0: It was a blank in my mind too, even oh, though thank it's, it's, God. I can yeah. reach for the book right here. But yeah, just, yeah, that last name was not there for me. Every <laughs> once
1: in a while, the Google in your head kind of goes, um, anyway, so he was going to be the one DC character. And then it ended up being completely switched on its head. Um, Alain at that point had gone on to do something else because, you know, I think he was, there's an old French expression, if they're not going to feed you, leave the table. And I think he, you know, it was, it, there was just so many changes, changes of editorial teams And the next thing I knew, I was, you know, told, okay, it's all DC characters uh, and you can keep one of your creator owned characters. And, and then I remember them saying, you can have a Zatanna. And I said, I can have Zatanna. (laughs) And, um, and I said, as a teacher or as a student, and I was so hoping that I would get her as a student. And they said, you can have her as a student. And. The through line for me through all of these, I I feel like I've been babbling, but the through line for me was the way, it was the opposite of Stephanie Brown Batgirl. What do you do if you have been the best at something in your high school and in your earlier adolescence, and then you go off to this incredibly prestigious college and you are not only no longer are you the best, but you seem to possibly be maybe not the worst, but- Hanging out with the worst, and I just thought that that crisis of confidence is is, is such a big part of college.
0: Yes. I mean, that was something that really resonated with me when I when I read these back in in 2017, because I, I, I had just gone through that my myself uh, more for in, in terms of grad school than undergrad. But yeah, that feeling of, you know, well, I mean, you you said earlier imposter syndrome, right? I mean, and there is that like, like how did I get here? I don't belong here. And they're going to find me out at any moment. But then, of course, it turns out that uh, she's pretty awesome.
1: So, I mean, I think that was a big part of what I wanted to do as Zatanna. Zatanna is a lot of fun um, as a character, but she's also been very much defined by the men she's dated, like John Constantine. And I thought, okay, I get it. You're a good girl who's attracted to bad boys. That that was my take on her. Um something I think a lot of a lot of people could might be able to relate to.
0: Yeah. yeah. We've and, all been we've all been there.
1: And I really wanted to also write The Bad Boy. Uh, That was another big fun thing. I, I come from, I mean, I loved comics as a kid. I also loved romance. And I think for a really long time, comics had gained this cachet and people were taking them seriously. And romance was still it. It, it was just viewed the same way. I don't know, like fake stucco siding. It was like no one was ever going to take it seriously. And I kept trying to say, it's not what you guys think it is. It's not, you know, inherently um, facile or shallow or stupid. There's so many great things to play with in romance. So that was another aspect. I wanted to write about different kinds of romantic love, which for me... Um, which just also a part of the exploration of of college. I think is as, as a uh, when I was in college, I was very much aware about how people are trying themselves on like costumes, and so that was and that was the cosplay idea as well that that we're we're creating ourselves, we're inventing ourselves on this new stage
0: in college. I mean, you've got a great line in the book where yeah, you know, I don't remember which character it is, but one of the characters turns to the uh, to another and says, "You know, that's what we're doing here. Like college is where you get to completely reinvent yourself, and so so do that. Be whoever you want to be here." And that's a that's a great message. That's a great line, and uh, it's a great book. I, I recommend it. All right. Well, I'm desperate to go talk about romance novels with you. But before we do that, I have to say that I hope that that offer to write Hellblazer is an open offer because I want to read your John Constantine so bad. (laughs) But let's talk about some some romance novels because you have actually written some really excellent and well-regarded romance novels. Some of the more recent ones include Flirting in Cars and then also On the Couch. But you also published one in, in 1992, which right is still when you're actually working on The Sandman, mm-hmm. I, I guess. So you've been working on romance novels for a long time. And I, I would love to know what drew you to, to writing romance novels.
1: I think that romance, like horror, is a really visceral genre. And it, uh, you know, The writing is supposed to take you over. You want to feel these feelings in your gut. And I think that that was a big part of the appeal. And also part of what I love about writing, about stories, is I love when people impact really strongly on each other. And because romance ends on a positive, upbeat note it allows you to explore dark themes and and darker uh, shadow sides of the self in a way that feels quite safe and i think that i'm that suits my personality i i am drawn to the darkness but i i do always want to end you know with a marshmallow
0: <laughs> i mean i feel that impulse as, as as well but i i don't know romance novels very well i love rom-coms. i watch a ton of rom coms, especially at, at Christmas time. It's just like it's like part of of winter for me is uh, is watching rom coms by myself. And uh, I would actually love to start reading romance novels because uh, accidentally, uh, Brandon and I over on the the network's flagship show Elder Sign, which is our our weird fiction podcast, um, accidentally read a, a romance short story by a writer who is. Known today uh, as as a weird fiction writer, that's William Hope Hodgson, but also Robert W. Chambers, who wrote uh, The King in Yellow, which is um, a, a literary allusion that Neil Gaiman makes in the very first issue of the Sandman. Uh, you know, serious business horror chops also really made a living as a a, a romance writer, and I was really intrigued by the, the one bit of. Romance fiction that you know I've read, you know, in that in that sort of mode, the critical mode, you know, that I bring to podcasting, and it really made me start thinking about wanting to do a kind of romance novel podcast, which I don't have time for, but I I would really love to get deeper into romance novels, and I I wonder if you have any thoughts about where I should start.
1: Well, first of all, I want to do that podcast with you.
0: (laughs) I'm going to remind you you said that in in about a year. (laughs)
1: Um, So I think what I was so the first. Romance that I wrote was the dominant blonde. And I think it got published as Chicklet, um, just as Chicklet was starting. Right. And I, I think it was an atypical Chicklet. It wasn't set in the city. Uh, my heroine was a hairdresser and it involved scuba diving and corpses. So I, it was a really atypical Chicklet book. Um, I think now it would be called a rom-com, rom-com hybrid adventure. Uh, I wanted to write a Carl Hyacinth on estrogen. That was the first thought that I had. I wanted some element of uh, social satire in there. And, and yet, you know, social satire and satire is a distancing technique, you know, that you get the humor from distance. And romance, as I said, is visceral and you're right in the character's shoes. So I, I wanted to see if I could make both those things work. Um, and I also loved at that point, I think romance had just begun to really explore the two-hander where you're equally in both, uh, you've got two protagonists, both with arcs, um, back in that time, it tended to be cisgender, uh, heterosexual romance. So you'd be in the hero's uh, point of view, as well as the heroine's. And I loved that. I thought it it gave great opportunities for humor and to see each character through the other's eyes. So that's what I started to do. And then I experimented a lot. So the, the series of books, as I said, I think they were sort of marketed as chiclet, but everyone was a little bit different. So The dominant blonde was, as I said, that it was also influenced a bit by romancing the stone and all of those great (laughs) action adventures. And I had a whole, I actually asked Neil's advice with it. So I was, um, I was very, I, you know, faulty towers has, uh, that episode with the corpse where the, the cuss, the, the guest in the in the hotel dies and the health inspector's there and they keep moving the corpse around into different places. And I, I wanted to do something like that, but then I said, Oh my God, you know, what do I do? Everyone has been looking all over the place. And I, I can't remember exactly how I phrased the question, but I do remember Neil saying something like, Well, in the end, the corpse must be no place that anyone expects it and must show up where no one does. And that was you know, that, that was Sort of a guideline that I used with my with the dominant <laughs> blonde, and then uh, let's see. I think I had one that was my take on uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and I wanted a character who is married and having all these fantasies. So I was breaking a lot of rules. First, I was writing under my real name because I thought I am writing the this genre, but to the best of my ability, and I don't want to hide under a pseudonym. Uh, I was writing Jewish heroines, and. I kept just trying to see how much could I give wish fulfillment, but still have that ring of authenticity. So in The Dominant Blonde, I wanted a heroine who'd slept with more people than she felt comfortable with and wasn't sure how to trust if this was going to be, you know, a connection that was actually going to work. And I think at that point, it's Everything is so much more sex positive now. But in the old days, your heroine had to be either a virgin or the next best thing, which meant she could have slept with one other person, but she can't have enjoyed it. And (laughs) so I, you know, I I wanted to play with all of of those things. And I, I kept breaking rules. In romance, I hadn't realized it was sort of an unofficial rule that the first male that you encounter, that the heroine encounters with any note, you know, has to be the hero. So I... I think I was unintentionally breaking those rules and I just had a lot of fun. I, I also liked writing humor. I've, I've, humor has always fascinated me. Uh, what I wanted to differentiate between in my own mind was not to be clever because clever, clever kind of comes easy, but, but real humor has to always take more chances.
0: Oh, I, I agree. And I think clever is much easier to do than funny. Funny is tremendously hard. It's very, very hard to be funny. But I think this is something you definitely succeed at in, in Mystic U with all its romance bits. It, it is also very funny. And I really appreciate these insights into your your process and also your storytelling goals. So what are you working on now?
1: I'm working on right now a mini series for Ahoy Comics uh, with the artist Alain Morissette, who I mentioned earlier. And uh it's, you know, it's kind of sex in the city meets Golden Girls by way of the Twilight Zone. It's a story of two <laughs> women uh who, one in her 70s and one in her late 40s, who end up going through a time portal to the day in 1973 when, uh, which is an important day for both of them, and they don't realize it, but it's also the day when they first met. And it's a story about bad romance um, and other disasters, including a nod to 1970s-era disaster films <laughs> and Airplane. Uh, but it, it's also about relationships, mothers and daughters, uh, romantic relationships, and friendships.
0: Well, well, you had me at Twilight Zone, but I also love these disaster movies from the nineteen seventies. I mean, I think my father made me watch The Towering Inferno uh, more times than I could possibly ever count when I was a, when I was a kid. But also, Airplane! That's awesome.
1: Part of what I ended up doing is I think this story opened a weird rift in my unconscious. And in my unconscious, there are a lot of old disaster films. So I, I had done a deep dive into all of the airport films, which were fodder for the parody of Airplane. So I, I just want to say I went to the true source material, which is <laughs> the, the airport films with Charlton Heston coming out of airplanes and Karen Black, who was... Such a fabulous actress, but looked a little cross-eyed as she tried to land the plane. And uh <laughs> Linda Blair from The Exorcist as sick girl in the plane, and Helen Reddy, I am woman, as the nut. Anyway, there is an airplane. Okay, so let me just let me just say. It, it, time travel always has rules, right? And one of the rules when you live in this apartment is you can go back uh through the portal. You have to go alone. And there there are these rules. So that when the two women go. Through together, they've broken a major rule, and they've, you know, created a hole in, in the time space continuum. And when you've got a hole in the time space continuum, you know, an airplane can accidentally fly through. So, in addition to the main characters, there's just this 1973 airplane that's disappeared from 73 and uh, and shows up
0: in the present. Well, this sounds absolutely delightful. I mean, you had me at, I think, every step of, of the pitch there, I mean, and just kind of landed on with the, the Twilight Zone there. So this sounds awesome to me. So uh, what is this book called and, and when is it going to be available?
1: It will be available later this year. Uh, the title is GILT, G-I-L-T. It's an acronym. It can be considered to stand for the Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists, and a temporalist is someone who travels in their own timeline. So you can't go back to ancient Rome. You're going back to different phases of your own life. Um, it could also be grandmothers I'd like to tap. I mean, that's just a rumor. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's certainly the the 90s version of that acronym for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about the art and the artist? You mentioned who that was earlier, but I, I'd love to know what the the look of this is going to be.
1: So, okay, this is Alain Morissette. Uh, He and I worked on uh, a story from uh, another Ahoy book, Snifter of Terror. We did an Edgar Allan Poe story. And he and I have been talking about collaborating for ages. And so what we ended up discovering is when, when you do a lot of talking with an artist and you end up having a great collaborative feedback loop, it just... Like, I'll have an idea, and he'll pick up on it and kind of push it further. And then that will give me an idea. And it it feeds into the writing. So for example, in one of the scenes where there's the airplane that's, you know, beginning to crash, and there's fighter jets around it. I describe the characters, including a pregnant woman who's, you know, beginning to go into labor. And he draws her with this cranky expression on her face as she smokes a cigarette in the airplane in 1973. And it's it's just, it's both beautiful art and at times it can be quite emotional. But there's also, for me, some of that old Mad Magazine satire vibe of, you know, it's just... I, I love it, and and also his palette is filled with these wonderful saturated, you know, oranges and 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 seventies greens, and it's uh, very very satisfying.
0: Yeah, that's going to be absolutely gorgeous. I'm excited about that, and I loved Snifter of Terror. That's actually something that uh, we should cover over on our Elder Sign. where we actually do, Edgar Allan Poe, which, and, and in fact, if I could just follow up and ask you about that a little bit, how did you how did you get involved in that in that project?
1: Um, so I, you know, they, they asked me to pitch, um, and they said that the mandate was to do like an Edgar Allan Poe story, only more disgusting. And I, I love Edgar Allan Poe. I think one of his more disgusting stories is Berenice, uh, which is about teeth. Teeth are always disgusting. Um, and, uh, and I, I was just, it's funny because I, Oh my God, I love doing this so much. But I remember I was, I was at a San Diego Comic Con. I was with Mark Russell and his wife. And I said, Oh my God, you know, it's like, I really want to make a vagina dentata joke with this, <laughs> but obviously I can't show it, you know, and what can I do? And, you know, and Mark said, Oh, well, of course, you know, when you can't show the thing itself, show the effect it's made. And so I ended up having this scene where my heroine gets off a bicycle and bicycles right I got to say all the stuff about feminism but anyway she gets off the bicycle and the seat has been all chewed up and the, the hero's kind of looking at it askance um <laughs> that may be too explicit to have said on it. anyway but yeah to, and Alan and I had so much fun because I you know I just wanted him to incorporate teeth into everything into every design element it was just it was a very toothy story that we did.
0: Yeah, Berenice is a story that I I have read and have loved, but just really, it's the teeth. Yeah, I just find it I find it downright unsettling to, uh yes. <laughs> to read to revisit. Like buried alive, uh, you know, be tortured, um, you know, cat trying to get revenge on you, all of that stuff. I can I can I can deal with that. You know, your your family estate falling falling down around you, all that's fine. The teeth, though, that's where Poe gets me. <laughs>
1: Well, then you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy my Berenice.
0: <laughs> well, all right. So, I would just want to remind everybody: guilt is the, the the new book that you're you're working on, and that's going to hit shelves sometime later this year. It's something certainly that I'm really excited about. And and when it's out, we'll we'll make sure we let people know. We'll make sure we re- remind people about that. But let's talk about the short story that we've both read for today. The I have not actually left us a lot of time for it. But at any rate, this is the 1953 story, Warm, It's written by Robert Sheckley, who was a really important writer in the late part of science fiction's golden age. Though I think Sheckley also clearly anticipates a lot of what becomes known as New Wave. And uh, in that way, I think shares a lot of DNA with Alfred Bester. I'm going to give a synopsis of the story. That way, people who have not read it can uh, be there with us. But before I do that, Alisa is going to tell us a little bit more about Robert Sheckley.
1: So Robert Sheckley, in addition to the fact that he was my father, is considered uh, important because of his early humorous short stories in large part. Um, many people consider him an influence on Douglas Adams, although Douglas Adams never copped to it. He was a science fiction writer who was more interested in social satire than he was in gizmos and gadgets and, you know, how would you survive on Mars? So it's, it's an interesting kind of science fiction. And he, um, to this day is probably more famous in Russia, uh, than, than he is here because there was a way in which his commentaries on bureaucracy and government and individualism passed under the radar in the former Soviet Union because of the fact that it was set in America and set in the future.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I had no idea that was the case, though I can see the uh, appeal, right? There's certainly something of uh, Dostoevsky, maybe even more of of Gogol in warm and and it does also certainly feel like a bit of gut wrenching satire, and maybe that's a, a good note on which I should just introduce the story so that we can talk about it. Warm is set contemporary to its writing, so it's early nineteen fifties Manhattan. Our protagonist is a young psychology professor. He's named Anders. Anders is getting ready to go pick up his girlfriend Judy so that they can go to a party together, and two things have happened while Anders is getting dressed and groomed. One, he realizes that he loves Judy, and that means that he's he's going to have to propose to her tonight. And he is not thrilled about this, though, because he he rather thinks of love as some kind of inconvenient affliction. But the other thing that has just happened to him is that he's heard a voice in his head talking to him. Now, the voice claims to be a real person who is trapped in some kind of dark emptiness or or empty nothingness. But this person doesn't know his own identity, doesn't know where that dark emptiness is located. And Anders humors this voice, but then just goes about his business. But he is finding that the world seems different to him now. And when he gets to Judy's, he can no longer see her as a person. And instead he sees her as, and this is straight from the text, he sees her as a flesh machine. And she's really just acting out her social programming. And this freaks Anders out, freaks him out so much that he runs off w- without her. He, he does go to the party, uh, but this is now uh, a kind of away mission. He wants to see if the world or you know, if the whole world is continuing to look different to him like this. And It is. At the party, he just finds more of the same. And as this has been going on, the voice in his head has been cheering him on for these revelations, right? Anders is so close to seeing the world as it really is. And then he does. He realizes that nothing is real. It's all fake. And with that revelation, everything around him disappears. The people, the city, and finally, even the stars. He now finds himself in a dark emptiness, and he feels trapped. This is not a good place to be. He wants out. And so he reaches out with his mind, and he, he finds someone. And it, it turns out that it's himself. It's himself still getting ready for the party, though that's something we the readers recognize, not something Anders recognizes. But he says save me. And this other Anders hears him. And so the story comes full circle. And I think we have to imagine that it's going to repeat. Uh, So I have a lot of questions about this story. I think this is absolutely a brilliant work of fiction. But maybe just to open up conversation, Elisa, why, of of all your father's excellent stories, why is this the one that you picked for us to talk about?
1: I think uh, I have a special fondness for this story in part because it's probably the reason I exist. <laughs> My mother, as a 15-year-old, read this story. And when years later, as a 20-year-old, she met Bob Sheckley, that was part of the attraction. And so of all the stories in the world to, uh, you know, be behind a... a Marriage and 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 the conception of a child. This seems like the least likely one, since it is about alienation <laughs> and the uh, unavoidable solitude that each of us face in our own. You know how we are each our own uh, inescapable universe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's really interesting at the the core of this story. Right, is that. Anders has this revelation that everything is nothing, the whole world is is fake, that we're all kind of performing roles that are expected of us and maybe in that sense aren't really individuals, right? We don't really have uh, the type of free will that we think we do, that he's having that revelation moments after the revelation that he's in love. And it's hard not to uh, to see the connection there, right? To see the one revelation as a catalyst for the other.
1: Absolutely. There's another, I mean, there's a bunch of stories about connection. The language of love is another, uh, and the impossibility of true connection. I think I had a, an art teacher who said that good teaching gave students the ability to put into words concepts that had not, that they recognized, but hadn't been able to put into words before. And I think, um, for me, warm is a story that describes something that I've experienced, that I think a lot of us have experienced, in a way that I, you know, I think was even more impactful for me than existentialism and uh, Sartre and um, and others who have, have written about this kind of detached alienation and that that state of being. Um, my mom taught me about existentialism when I was very young. I think about twelve years old. She had me reading The Stranger. And years later, I found this fun little shortcut. It said, nihilism is the belief that there is no meaning inherent in anything. And existentialism is the belief that there's no meaning inherent in anything. But, you know, it's incumbent upon us to invest it with meaning to create that meaning. And absurdism builds on that by saying, and, you know, it's all going to go to shit anyway, so you might as well laugh.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think you, you've you basically just summed up entire whole movements of, in philosophy right there, absolutely flawlessly. I've
1: adapted <laughs> that from someone else's brilliance. Um, at this point, I'm only impressed with the fact that I could somewhat remember it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that was something that really struck me about this story. And, and actually, I'm glad you said, Sartre because I, I just sort of glommed onto a kind of feeling of, of Nietzsche. Well, I was reading this, but I think Sarja is is certainly much more, uh, much more. You know where this story is working, but I had a hard time. You know, leaving this story. Chris read it many times before we we got on the microphones today. But I, I had a difficult time understanding what I was supposed to, or maybe not what, but how I was supposed to leave this story f- feeling. And and I think. For me that was just a lot of a lot of angst um uh, you know I felt uncomfortable uh you know identifying with the protagonist of the story right seeing this world from the you know from his perspective and imagining myself going through this kind of experience I I was you know, I felt a lot of just dread maybe a kind of existential dread but I wasn't sure what Sheckley you know wanted me to go do with that
1: Yes he does not he does not give you a, you know a prescription. I I'm very fond of the Twilight Zone, even though my mom always said that uh, Rod Serling was infamous for stealing other people's ideas and uh, churning them out as his own. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the Twilight Zone always ends in a way. Not all of them, but most of them, with a little bit of a, and that is why we must learn to be a little bit kinder to our neighbors. Or the, you know, it's it's a little. Uh, Aesop fably in terms of its prescription, warm does not come with a prescription for how to get out, how to remove head from own rectum. And, uh, you know, I think Bob Sheckley describes, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. He is talking about a kind of over-intellectualizing and the dangers of it, but also he's describing it as something which, you know, you're going to fall into, that there is no way to be authentic to yourself and not at times see the gears and wheels moving, how this is all a construct. And I, I think As a human, although my father was very flawed, and he didn't raise me, so I I learned him through his stories. But one of the stories that I love is that at one point in later years, he told me that my mom, I think, I think they'd smoked weed probably one of the first times, and she was (laughs) focused on the flaws in her face and was looking at, you know, her left eyelid and whatever it was, her nose and the slight asymmetry of her face, and he said. All these things are true and yet pull back and see yourself in gestalt and see yourself with kindness. And, you know, and, and you have to remember to keep doing that. And so I think that what the story doesn't say, but what is behind it is this idea that we have to see things authentically in, in its component strangeness. And then we have to ease back into gestalt. We have to see a see at the same time time, perhaps, or go back between these modes of seeing. And so for a story that's short and light and funny, I think it does, in the end, give uh, possibly a path forward.
0: I mean, it's certainly a a kind of cautionary tale, right? Because... I think most thinking people are going to have some kind of revelation like this in in their lives, right? You're going to see the world through this this lens in some way and it it can I think lead you into a trap of of empty nothingness and and you know if you don't find a way to steer yourself out of that and say yes but still I I have to go out in the world and imbue it with with meaning, right? And and, and that's actually what all people have been doing (laughs) forever. And so I I do find it actually... Although it, it filled me with dread, it actually also had a kind of positive uh, influence on me. Right, it made me kind of take a deep breath and, and 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 actually, I do all of my well, I shouldn't say all, but most of my my reading for podcasting happens uh, right before family dinner time. While my wife's in the kitchen and I'm uh, uh, and I'm reading, and my son is playing by himself, and I I you know that's alone time that we really want to give him. Uh, but I I broke the rule and had to go down and just play with him. You know, because I thought that's where I want to be right now, right? That's the meaning in in my life, right? So Shackley sent me on that journey there, where I felt a little bottomed out just reading this story and then thought, but yeah, what's what's awesome about the world and and where where should I be right now? Where do I want to be right now? And I was able to go to go do that. And uh, so that brought some real joy to me
1: oh, i'm I'm very glad. Yeah, I think that as a person, uh, he was he he fought with that intellectual detachment in himself. And perhaps with a little bit of a, a Diogenes uh, pull, you know, to, to renounce everything and everyone and just go into the world of, of story and writing. Um, and then he was pulled in the opposite direction as well. I, you know, I think that one of the things that's interesting about Sandman for me is how much Neil engages with not just the... Idea of story, but with the failings and desires of storytellers. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but I, I mean, there are other stories that I think are other riffs on some of these same thoughts, language of love and, um, besides still waters. And I, yeah, I've been, I, I think one of the ideas that I have for Up Ahead is I really want to write about the science fiction world that my parents were in in the 50s. Uh, they actually had a science fiction group called Hydra. So it's it's <laughs> something that I've been thinking a lot about. I think that that mid-century modern futurism is, is just something that's been very captivating to me lately.
0: I, I would be super excited to, to read something about that. I, I'm a, a transplant to the East Coast, specifically a transplant... To, to Philadelphia, but this is this is Asimov territory here. Uh, we have done live shows at the science fiction convention that Isaac Asimov started, and uh, the the science fiction workshop that he started is still you know, still still going. Uh, Michael Swanwick and others. Uh, oh, you know, Michael local Swanwick's bigwids.
1: amazing.
0: Oh, he is, and he's 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 well, perhaps I guess nobody's involved in anything now since the pandemic, but has been a big fixture. He and of course Sam Delaney as as well here in Philly. But uh, I guess anyway, I was just trying to say that yeah. I would love to know more about, you know, about that milieu, about that world, and uh, any insights you have. I would, I would be super enthusiastic about reading. Well, I'm really delighted to have read this story as well. So I'm, I'm so glad that you, you picked this, and, and this was just such an awesome idea to do generally. But I've got one more question, and this is about Neil Gaiman bringing it back full circle here because Neil's pretty infamous for as a, a, a young person having the audacity to just write to writers write letters to writers and i wonder if if your father was one of them
1: i am not aware of that um although there is a funny story which i'm saving up for probably for a game of you about um how neil found out that robert sheckley was my dad
0: yeah, well, I will. I will not make you tell that story here on the air, but because then that means I can look forward to that episode of Endless <laughs> again. But uh, yeah, I guess this is a good note on which to to wrap things up. So, Elisa, let me just say thank you so much again for guest hosting with me today. This was just an it was just an absolute blast for me.
1: I I'm having so much fun, and I I'm really excited to talk to you more about romance. I am actually reading right now a weird like giant bug. Uh, science fiction romance by Arlie Smith. So we can we can talk about all kinds of things.
0: I would love to continue doing that. So I uh, yeah, you will be hearing from me about that for <laughs> sure. And uh, I would love to keep talking about this this story as well with our listeners. And so if you would uh, like to do that with me, uh, please drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or come by our subreddit. And while you are on the internet, I hope that you will be sure to check out uh, Lisa's podcast, Endless, a Sandman podcast, and of course, all of the stories that we uh, we talked about today, but especially look out for guilt later this year uh Elisa, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing
1: oh gosh yes uh i am i am on twitter as uh what am i at a Quitney. i'm on instagram but i keep forgetting what i am on instagram i'm something like k witty on instagram but uh, yes i'm there and uh, i'm on facebook I think I'm Elisa Quitney Sheckley on my my.
0: <laughs> I need to do better. I need to do better. <laughs> right. I think at this point, you know, uh, people, our listeners, uh, know how to find us on the internet. I think better than we know how to find ourselves. That's uh, the world we're living in, but uh, well worth following. So I hope people will will do that. And next time, Brent and I are going to be back for the the first episode in our our little break between. Sandman volumes. We're going to be talking about the Neil Gaiman short story, October in the Chair. Uh, Brilliant story. Really excited about that. But until then, pleasant dreams.